Hi, thanks for listening to our sermon podcast, Second on the Mount. I'm George Anderson, minister at Second Presbyterian in Roanoke, Virginia. I do not take it for granted that people sit in the pews on Sunday morning or listen to these podcasts hoping to hear something that connects them to God, to each other, to the world. And so I spend hours seeking the right word for the right time and said in the right way. I welcome your feedback. I encourage your sharing this sermon with anyone it might benefit. And I hope you'll return to this podcast again or come visit us for worship. We'd be happy to have you. Let us pray. Holy God, hold us accountable to your word and what it asks of us. Amen. David Henry served faithfully as a Baptist minister and then in his retirement became a happy Presbyterian parishioner. David read the kind of books I'm drawn to and after he joined the church triumphant and Nancy decided to downsize, something needed to be done about his extensive library. So Nancy made David's books available to the ministers and to the library of Second Presbyterian Church. I had already read, or at least own, many of David's books, and my own library shelves have very little room for more tenants. Nevertheless, there were a few too enticing to pass on, like the collected sermons of Fred Craddock. Fred Craddock's books about preaching had a huge impact on me when I was first learning how to talk good in the pulpit. I went out of my way to hear Craddock preach and teach. He was short, balding, and his voice was anything but booming. He described it once as a thin reed whistling in the wind. But he preached with such eloquence that those who listened were riveted. In short, I'm a fan. Yet while I owned his books about preaching, until Nancy made it available to me, I didn't own any book of his sermons. And now I have his sermons to read, which is a very odd experience at times. I mean, don't get me wrong, they're wonderful, but he crafts sermons to be heard, not read, and to be preached in particular contexts. Now, other published preachers will adapt the sermons for the page and wipe away the names and references that the readers would not recognize. Not Craddock. At least he doesn't do that much. He leaves in the incomplete sentences and the asides, comments on the day's weather, the humorous observations inspired in the moment. For instance, there were those observations that came of preaching in churches for the very first time. One time, right before he was to preach, the choir sang an anthem and then for some reason filed out of the choir loft. Craddock began his sermon by saying, I am reminded of the passage, they forsook him and fled. (laughs) Another time, Craddock, who stood about five feet, four inches, at least that's my memory of looking down at a man I looked up to, but who stood about five feet, four inches, he rose to preach in a pulpit that was a bit taller than normal. As if he heard what the congregation was thinking, he declared, I am standing. Now, what does any of that have to do with my sermon this morning? Not much, really. I'm just beginning a sermon the way Craddock often did, kind of 
warming the congregation up with the off-the-point reflections and a bit of humor. Who knows, maybe if someday a book is published called The Collected Sermons of George Anderson, a blurb on the back might read, Like Fred Craddock, George Anderson preaches, only with more height, hair, and a louder voice. (laughs) Notice I didn't say George Anderson preaches like Fred Craddock. No one can preach like Fred Craddock. I'm still trying to learn to preach like Fred would want George Anderson to preach. But besides paying homage to Craddock, there is one reason I've rambled on about him. In the book from David's library, I read a sermon Craddock preached on a passage that I normally avoid because it's so hard to hear. Craddock points out, though, it might be important that we listen because this is the last sermon Jesus preaches in Matthew's gospel. For Matthew, in other words, this might be the most important thing that Jesus has to say. Here's what Jesus has to say. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he puts the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food, or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you, or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did to one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did to me. And then he will say to those at his left hand, You who are accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not give me clothing. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And then they also will answer, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? And then he will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did not to one of the least of these, you did it not unto me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The word of the Lord. The story goes that Charlie Chaplin entered a Charlie Chaplin lookalike competition and came in 20th. At least that is what the Straits Times of Singapore reported in 1920. Or maybe it was 27th place, which is what the Poverty Bay Herald and the Albany Advertiser reported. Or maybe 4th place. I mean, that's how Craddock heard it. I don't know. Maybe the story's made up, but I find it believable. There were more Chaplin impersonators in the 1920s than there are Elvis impersonators today. 
And then, as now, some are uncannily good. Y'all need to see Doug's um, Elvis impersonation sometime. And back then, the judgment had to be based on these grimy black and white movies. But what if all the contestants were behind a screen and a judgment had to be made not on how they looked, but on what they said? You know, like the dating game. What place would the real Charlie Chaplin come in then? Or what if behind that screen there was Jesus and a bunch of Jesus impersonators? What place would Jesus come in? I'd be scared to find out. I suspect that I might be one of those who would choose a Jesus that suits me, the Jesus I wanted, a Jesus who reflects my views, who stands on the same side of issues as me. And though I am certain that Jesus loves everyone, I would think it might be the Jesus who would shake his head and laugh at my snark over those who just don't get it like Jesus and I get it. Now, back in grade school and in junior high school, I would have had two different Jesuses. There was the Jesus given to me by my parents and congregations, the Jesus who did love me unconditionally, the one I counted on to get me out of jams, the one who understood me when no one else understood me. But then there was also the Jesus of so much of the culture of the deep South in which I lived. At school, in the neighborhood, and on TV, the loudest deep South take on Jesus was the Jesus who scared the fire out of me. And our passage today was used to fuel the fear. At the end of time, or at least at the end of one's life, a final reckoning was to take place, a final accounting of your life. The good and the bad of your life would be tallied and the scales would be tipped, either launching you into heaven or dumping you into hell. That's what I heard. And I heard that some sins weigh more heavily in the balance than others. And it was confusing because it seemed so easy to trip up. Some of the sins that I was told that weighed so heavily with God did not seem like such a big deal in real life. Sins like sex thoughts, believing what Catholics believed, mowing the lawn on Sunday. And then there was that sin that was so heavy that it, it didn't matter how much good thoughts and deeds were piled up on the other side of the scale. Paul called it the unforgivable sin. This one sin would turn the whole scale over in the wrong direction. And since that sin was only vaguely defined as a sin against the Holy Spirit, an opening was left for the Deep South preacher to define it for you. It might be hearing the gospel and not accepting it, or not cooperating with the Spirit and speaking in tongues, or calling yourself a Christian when you haven't joined the right church. It's scary. So easy to get crosswise with God. You know, it's always a good idea to place what a passage says beside what others say it says. In this case, I think that would help, even though Jesus will still come across as harsh and demanding. 
What if the passage that we heard, what if the passage that we have before us is not a literal description, but one of Jesus's parables? Simply a parable. Now, there's nothing simple about a parable because a parable is like a crystal and that it refracts light in so many different directions. But let's read the passage the way a parable is supposed to be read on the slant. By that, I mean that parables are always about something other than what they are literally talking about. The parables in Luke 15 that Millie Snyder helped us think about, the parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost two sons, are at least in part about exclusion and embrace. The ways we exclude ourselves by excluding others and the ways God keeps going to where we have exiled ourselves to bring us back in. The parable of the irritating widow banging on the judge's door is about not giving up on justice, at least in part. At least in part, the parable about the mustard seed is about faith. The parable about the good Samaritan is about loving neighbors who are different. The parable about hoarding grain in the barn is about greed. And our parable about end times is really about now times. Heard in this way, this parable about when life is done is asking a critical question about how we are living right now. Again, this isn't to water down what Jesus says. He wants us to take very seriously the question that this parable is asking us. Let's go back to the uh, game. Let's go back to Jesus and those Jesus impersonators being behind the screen. If in dating game style, one were to try to pick out the real Jesus, a good question to ask the contestants might be about the question that Jesus would ask us. If you were to ask me one question that would help me consider my life, that would help me weigh the real value of my life, what would that question be? And one of the contestants says, did you love and hate the right people? Another says, did you prove your virtue by being successful? We dismiss those possibilities easily. Were you true to your conservative values? Another says. And still another says, were you true to your progressive ideals? And another says, did you take the right stand on the issues? And we dismiss those candidates easily too, though we may do so with an embarrassed smile, remembering a recent self-righteous rant we went on. Says another, did you join the right church? Obviously, that's not the real Jesus, but um, if you are a member here, the answer is yes. Another is, did you learn the right theology and did you get it right? We are both convinced and relieved that's not the real Jesus because we've tried and we still haven't got our theology straight yet. Another, have you verbally accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Which is a tempting one for those of us whose life truly have been made more graceful and more full in doing so. But with our parable fresh in mind, we hear a contestant ask a question that suggests maybe this is the real Jesus. 
Now, maybe this parable is hyperbolic and overstresses the point, as parables tend to do, by the way. But if we stay in the imagined world of this parable, we hear the only question that finally matters at the end of the day. We hear a contestant say, were you kind? Were you kind to those who needed kindness? When you had the chance to be cruel, were you kind? Did you help when help was needed? Were you kind? Oh dear. Even without being literal about end times, that question's intimidating. The question Matthew's Jesus leaves us with in the very last sermon is that question. In the parable, the question is in the past tense, so that we'll ask it in the present tense. Are you kind? Never mind the unforgivable sin. That's the unavoidable question of this parable. It's a question that should be asked of our culture right now, I think. I mean, we live in this polarizing time when people are driven to take sides and then demonize those who are not with us but against us. In certain realms, being unkind is almost celebrated these days if it leads to winning, whether in war or in politics or in snark attacks on social media. This parable might be telling our culture, we've got a problem. If the parable is right, God doesn't much care at the end about verbal declarations of faith and is unimpressed by those who say they are Christian or follow Christ or call on his name and perhaps is irritated by those who claim to love Jesus while encouraging hate of others. What God cares about is if people are living as Jesus lived. Are you kind? If we stop asking or caring about that question, maybe the deep South preachers were right in part, that there comes a point when we do need to be a bit shaken if it's true that when we have the chance to be kind, we choose to be cruel. That might be a problem. Second Presbyterian, finding direction by following Jesus.